you talked a little bit about a recent controversial rule in your time with the Administrative Rules Committee. What perhaps is the most controversial rule that was in front of the committee? The comical thing is you would think it was abortion, but it was not. Because abortion was a big issue in the 1970s dealing with Medicaid. And, of course, Manette Doder, who was a strong women's rights advocate from Iowa City, ferociously supporting a woman's right to abortion using Medicaid funds. And so that was an issue in front of the committee, but it was much too big of an issue for the committee to deal with, and that was before it had power. So ultimately, the legislature has made the decision that we don't pay for abortions. The comical thing is the biggest single issue that came before the committee was lead shot. And that was back, it might have been as early as the 70s, and certainly the early 80s at worst, because Early on, the question was, was duck hunting. Well, the issue was banging with lead shot. It goes into the marshes and the sloughs, but ducks and other birds pick it up as grit for their intestines. They are poisoned by the lead. They die. They are in turn eaten by other animals who ingest the lead. Anyway, it doesn't create lead poisoning. And that became a ferocious issue with a large number of environmentalists demanding that we prohibit lead shot. And that was Gladys Black, who's now long since passed away. She was Iowa's bird lady, a famous amateur ornithologist who led the fight to ban lead shot. That was one of the cases where the committee had to move from its normal room in room 24 behind the Senate, later room 22, had to move to the House chamber. Because we had mob scenes of people in there on both sides of the issue. Because hunters, to this day, they'll tell you that a steel shot scours a shotgun barrel. If you've paid 500 bucks for a shotgun, you don't want the end blown out. But the other side of the coin is you've got lead shot. That issue was fought over, God, I bet you it was 25 years, 20 years at least, before they finally got lead shot. Oh, that's right. They got lead shot banned. But I think it finally took legislative action. It was an ongoing sore thumb issue that never quite went away. So uh, it's been in front of the Administrative Rules Committee for years. For years. And the committee would never quite resolve it because what you try to do is try to resolve so everybody gets something of what they want. The idea, you want a political compromise. There are some issues there is no compromise. It's either one way or the other. One of the most fascinating issues, and it was a big deal, dealt with landfills. The idea being that landfills require a certain type of liner to make sure that nothing can seep out of them. That was the subject of a number of meetings oh, about 10 years ago, and indeed a legislative day. But what made that interesting is the committee concerned about this rule because DNR, the EPC was saying, we have to do this rule. It's mandated by the federal government. We have to do it this way. The folks in Kansas City are insisting on it. We invited, and this is the only time the committee's ever done it, they actually invited, would the regional administrator, could you come to the committee and talk to us about it? And they agreed to do it. And there's Wayne Gieselman, who's the administrator of EPC. He is a straight-shooting guy. He is a good guy. So there he's representing the EPC, and the woman from the EPA is there. And in front of God and everybody said, well, no, we don't require that. And you could see Wayne just die. He had lost. And what's worse, he's been called a liar. And everybody liked Wayne, so it never reflected on him personally too badly. But remember, he's no longer there. But that was a fascinating issue where the agency, and it turns out Wayne talked to me privately, said, I swear to you, they told us we had to do it. 
But it was interesting to see how federal agency people could be just as weaselly as anybody else when it looks like maybe their own job on the line. Said, no, we, we don't require that. And so that rule went to the legislature. It was, in fact, vetoed by the legislature because, of course, the APA doesn't require it. While not the biggest issue in front of the committee, it was one of the most instructive as to how things can go wrong at the Runtics. Wayne Gieselman was just blindsided. Anyway, a word about Wayne Fappell. He's a fascinating man. He drafted bills in the 1940s. He had this wonderful story. He worked in the lieutenant governor's office, and he had spaces at the premium. The Lucas Building did exist in those days. See, it was catch as catch can for space, and Wayne was up there in the lieutenant governor's office. And in those days, he was a Supreme Court employee. He was a Supreme Court employee working for the Iowa legislature, drafting bills, because someone has to do it. He's there, and we're cheap. We're not going to pay for this. Anyway, and in those days, the standing committee meetings were secret. So he'd be in there helping whatever committee it was. And his story was he hated George Mills, and it's, this is why. He's standing there. He's working there in the committee, and they hear a bang, crash, bang, crash. What the hell's going on? So ultimately, they go up to the attic, and they find George Mills feeding a microphone down an air vent into room 24. So anyway, that's the reason there was a lifelong feud between Wayne Fopel and George Mills. And George Mills was a long-time Long-time reporter. In fact, he was still a reporter. He started, I can't even remember when, but he was still working here when I came. He was here for a good number of years. Wayne Fopel retired in, I think, 1985 and promptly died. He would have been 86. And Wayne started sometime in the early 1930s? I believe it was 32. It was either 32 or 33. I can't remember which. Just go back to the old Red Book before 1977 or so, and you'll see him as the code editor. He was very proud of that. Interesting man to talk to. In fact, one of the reasons I announced my retirement, Wayne stayed too long. He just did. He was used to putting books together by hand, and these ideas of computers, he didn't understand that and didn't want to. Change is a good thing. Wayne didn't see it that way. How did your role change over the years? Or is it still basically the same? In front of that committee, it's still basically the same. I know, especially in the service agency, drafters stay or they don't stay. The ones that stay are the ones that, I can just say it, more passive. The ones that go are guys that, I want to change the world. The guys that stay are the guys that say, well, I want to watch the world change. I try to be kind of careful what I do with that committee. The one thing I have always done is insist on what the procedure is, what 17A means and what it does, and I do speak up and say, okay, you have the authority to do this, you don't have the authority to do that. Yes, this rule can be filed at this time or it can't. That I do, but in terms of policy, what I do is I just advise the committee, okay, here's what this rule does, and if it's an issue, I say, okay, here's what the statutory authority is, as Jack does now as well. But I try to stay as far away from actual policy as I can, because that is none of my business. Especially the best example is when you're talking about abortion. A hot-button issue if you ever want to see one, but it is a political decision, not a legal one. Except to say, yeah, they do have authority to do that if that's what they want to do. Stay out of the policy decisions. So the role hasn't changed a lot. It has been made, and as I've told you before, Computerization has revolutionized. One of the reasons I'm a drafter now is because becoming working for the Rules Committee became easier and easier because less was demanded of you. Back in the 70s, 80s, maybe even the early 90s, I did a land office business looking up rules for people because it was difficult to do. We now have the rules entirely online. There is no hardbound 
administrative code. By the time that we stopped publishing the code, was what, five, maybe ten years ago? 2008. It had grown to be maybe 35 volumes long. And remember, that was before you had a database that was searchable. You had to know what rule it was. And remember, finding a rule is not easy because you have agencies, many agencies, with overlapping jurisdiction. I'm interested in nursing homes. Well, it depends on what you're interested in. If you're interested in construction, oh, that's the Department of Public Safety. You're interested in fire exits? Oh, that's the Department of Public Safety Fire Marshal's Office. Well, what about abuse in the elderly? Well, you need to talk to the Department on Aging and their Ombudsman's Office. Yeah, yeah, but I'm interested in my aunt's on Medicaid. Oh, that's Human Services. Yeah, well, by God, they're not treating her right, and I want to sue them. Oh, that's Inspections and Appeals. Many overlapping jurisdictions, so depending on what the issue is, there could be a whole number of choices. And then even once you knew that what agency it was, finding rules could be a bear. Because oftentimes, it's not like a rule is, head note, your issue. Your issue may well be a sub-rule within a larger rule, which may not be referred to in the title. Oftentimes, it's searching, and oftentimes it required memory work. The revolution occurred when we finally got a database that was searchable, and now people, and I still do some of that, because some people, they're uncomfortable with it, or they don't know what agency, and if you don't know what agency it is, you still have a problem. But now people can do that research themselves rather easily and rather quickly. And even for me, it would take a lot of time, because sometimes, again, unless it was mentioned in a head note, or I happen to remember what it was, it could take a lot of time to find that rule. So that part of the job is revolutionized. Setting up the committee meetings was revolutionized, again, by computerization. Putting together the agenda was no fun thing. First of all, and back in the old days, it required negotiations. Now we just tell agencies, you're going to be here at this time. In the 1970s and 80s, agencies, they had a lot of clout, and you had to talk to them. Yes, they had to come, but you had to talk to them about when they were going to come. So you called each agency representative, chatted with them, agreed upon a time, and then matched that puzzle with every other agency. Because remember, the committee tries to review as many rules as it can, which means it reviews at least two-thirds of the rules that are on the agenda that have gone through that month. So you'd have to talk to 20 to 30 agencies and get the time set. Then you'd have to prepare agenda, which I could not physically do because it required cutting and pasting which could only be done in the code editor's office. And they did insist on good-looking documents. They want to make sure that agenda looked just exactly right. Then you had to print it, which was no easy thing, a comical thing. A number of years ago, Christy Little used to be the superintendent of printing, and she and her husband now run a restaurant. Then I was in her restaurant one day, and I said, you know, the funny thing is, for years I did postage. I made hundreds and thousands of copies at the copy center, and that was basically working out of the Senate, if you will. And I wonder, that cost, it must have cost a fortune for all that printing and all that postage, whatever happened. And Christy kind of got a little, oh, I'll tell you what happened, I paid for it. <laughs> and little did I know that they said, okay, printing division, yeah, you just just do it. She wasn't in a position to argue with, <laughs> with the leaders of the Senate, so, but she wasn't happy about it, and she let me know. Anyway, so I had a significant mailing list, so all this had to be done by hand, which meant you needed to get that agenda out two weeks in advance. Now we do it less than a week. I no longer have a mailing list. Well, I do have a mailing list. I call it my spam cannon list. It's got 800 people on it. 
Back in the day, I had a mailing list of about 120 people, and that was hellish to get that stuff done. Now, a week before the meeting, I push a greasy red button. The spam cannon fires. Everybody gets this stuff. It's published to the web. We now have a permanent repository for that information. Again, all the ministerial parts of the rulemaking process, which, which were really time-consuming, have now gone away. It makes it easy. The code editor's office, which used to have at least 11, oh, maybe 14 people, it was a vast agency, is now down to four or five. Phyllis Berry, who used to, she loved working for the committee, but it was a drain on her time. I mean, because it required, it's about a 25% time. Stephanie has no such problems, because again, all the ministerial duties are just taken care of. Right. So the 21st century has benefited the committee immensely. I want to conclude that. Now the committee is entering into a new phase. It's a good time to be gone, because the committee has gotten even more power. Linda Upmeyer is the daughter of Delwyn Stromer, former minority leader, former Speaker of the House, and Linda loved the Rules Committee. She was on it. When she became Republican leader, she wanted to stay on the committee. I mean, she loved it that much. That, and I, I, that would have been a wonderful idea to have the majority leader as one of your committee. But that was not to be. That was just... But she kept her interest in the Rules Review Committee, and she got a bill passed two years ago, which gave the committee tremendous powers over rulemaking. Essentially, no rule can go into effect if the committee doesn't want it to. One of the things, to me, this was sacred. If an agency filed an emergency rule, once a rule went into effect, the committee's powers dropped to zero. I really believe that to be important because I believe if the separation of powers doctrine has any application at all, and it does, I think it really applies when a rule has gone into effect. Because once a rule goes into effect, it has the force and effect of law. And if the committee could postpone, delay, or otherwise impede the enforcement of that rule, you now have a legislative committee that can actually stop a law from being implemented because a rule is the functional equivalent of a law. Now the committee has that power. Also, the committee now has the power to, has to prior approve all emergency rules. And two meetings ago, for no reason that I saw, they chose not to do it. And I'm going, oh, if you're not going to do it, you better have a damn good reason. But they have now started not approving rules. I've always tried to keep the Rules Committee, as much as I could, an amiable kind of thing. And Burl did too. I mean, he put on a big show, but he wasn't let them work trouble. I want to discourage people from suing the Rules Review Committee. It was done. On the lead shot thing, somebody sued the Rules Review Committee. Tom Miller, who's still in authority, and he does not believe the Rules Committee is constitutional, but he's, after all, the state's lawyer. So he put his number two, Julie Podorf, who is one hell of a trial lawyer and aggressive as a bulldog. And she had no love for the Rules Committee either because back in her younger day, she experienced the Rules Committee firsthand. But by God, she went right to bat. She got that case quashed in nothing flat. There is now a chink in the armor. Someone has finally sued the Rules Review Committee. They were scared off. They were shooed away. But it's a matter of time before some of those powers go to court. And... Well, there's an old military thing about, it's called the fleet in being. When a nation would build together a great fleet of ships, that was really important to have it. But it was just important never to commit it to battle. Because as long as you had that fleet, you had that looming threat that would accomplish your goals. But once you commit it to battle, and it's either sunk or damaged, that threat is now gone. So the idea is you want your fleet in being, but you don't want to commit it to anything. 
Likewise, it's great for the committee to have this panoply of powers, but once you lose it, you've lost something you'll never get back. And that's what I worry about in the future, but we'll see what happens. It ain't probably going to happen for whatever reason. Governor Branstead really gets along with the rules. He signed that bill. He was happy to sign it. Privately, the governor's attorneys have told me they don't think much of the committee's power. They, they love the committee. We don't think your powers are yours are constitutional. So it was just one of those, it was a polite warning, be careful what you do. And I have shared that with Jack. Whether the committee members agree with that, we'll find out. So shifting from administrative rules yes. committee just a little bit, longtime office of yours was behind 116. Yes, that's anecdotal, but it, it's a hilarious story. The thing I really most enjoy about working for the legislative branch is I got to see the restoration of the, of the building from beginning to end. And the reason it began is, back in the day, I, I smoked a lot. The other thing was, I sort of was friendly with Cal Holtman, who was at that time the majority leader. We both had degrees in history. So Cal and I would chat quite a bit, and I would smoke. And people, eh, smokes, that's not a good thing. So Cal said, you know, we're getting room 116. That was this multi-office room that had AG staff on one half of it in several different offices. And then the western half of that entire room was the treasurer's private office, Maurice Berenger. Maurice Berenger volunteered to give up his private office in the Capitol to have it restored to its 1880s appearance. And we didn't care about the AG's office, just out you boys go. But that left that little office off 116, and Cal Holtman said, Joe, if you're willing to put up with that restoration, you can have that office. Works for everybody. I could smoke. I'm away from people. All I had to put up with was the dust. And it was the luckiest decision I ever made, because I got to watch. Because remember, room 116 had floor-to-ceiling walls. I got to watch them take that room down to the rafters, down to the floorboards, and I got to watch every instance of the restoration project, including replacement of the windows. And the interesting thing was they started uncovering the little fragments on the ceiling of the original artwork. And so step by step, they rebuilt that room. The comical thing was, one of the great things, they commissioned a, I think it was a Japanese man in Chicago, to design three chandeliers for that room, to restore it to its grand, and they did. Years later, it turns out those chandeliers weren't historically accurate. And so, in fact, after spending, and I think they might have been 5000 apiece, that number comes to mind. We scrapped them and put in historically more accurate ones. But the irony was in 19, whatever that was, 82 or whatever, we all stood in wonderment as those new chandeliers were, and they were, actually, they're more beautiful than the ones we have now. And the furniture in room 116, that was specifically designed for that room. So, brand new furniture for that room, brand new chandeliers, and then the state went broke. That was when we had the first economic crisis. The room wasn't done yet. More to the point, the floor, which was original capital oak or whatever the wood was, with concrete joists, that's what it was. But we'd run out of money. So their solution was, was to bring in some kind of astroturf, well, it was carbon, and glue it directly to the unfinished floor. And then they brought the same crappy tables in that were there before. And that's how things stayed down for about 15 years. Ultimately, we have, they've restored all that, they've put in good tables. But you'll still find that furniture in the back of the room. That's still the original. That's the stuff that was designed for that room, and Cal Holtman was so proud. The interesting thing, we also found out 
Why? Because somewhere in the 1920s and 30s, all this beautiful work of the Capitol was destroyed, was painted over. Everything was painted over some kind of color. When I first came here in 1976, this building was dirty, it was dark, and it was borderline unsafe. I mean, nothing worked. That's why we needed this huge restoration project, because the building was starting to fall apart. 116 was just the poster child for that. You could just see this ratty old room that had been subdivided and divided, and all the decorations on the walls had been removed. There was a little kind of a wainscot kind of thing they put on, but it was a dull, unpleasant color, and we, why would they do that? Well, we knew in the 1930s, we had no money, so just paint it over and be done with it. But the question was why, and that question's finally been answered over the years. That artwork you put up there doesn't last. The nature of this building, the temperature changes and whatever, that meticulous work you do has a relatively short lifespan. Room 16 has been worked on, on and off, now for 20 years after that work was complete, because it's always peeling, and probably will continue to. That's the problem with having that decorative artwork, is maintaining it. But anyway, so they got room 116 done, and then the work started in earnest, which was replacing all the windows. It had to be done. It's a good thing. But there was something. This building was so wonderfully designed. I'm in room 116, and the deal was you get to keep the room, but there were downsides to it. Heat was a problem, because the thermostat on that wall was the original thermostat from the 1880s. Still sort of halfway functioned. Not well, but you'd come in in the morning, and you'd turn that dial, and probably after an hour or so, you'd hear a bang crash, and the heaters would kick in. That ancient plumbing still worked. Those windows, and periodically in the 1970s, you'd hear, BAM! Well, what that was is the 200-pound sash weights inside the windows. You know, that rope has a lifespan. One by one, BAM! That, the ropes would break, the sash weights would fall. In, in my office in 116, those sash weights never failed which meant in summertime, no air conditioning, mind you, so that's the problem. You're now working in Iowa in the summer. You never got hot. I don't care how hot it was outside. That 20-foot ceiling, that's, that's why it was 20 feet, heat rises. And then once you open the window, there's two windows in runs, and you open them, that high up, there was always a permanent breeze. And the reason is this building has negative air pressure. You open a window, and air is sucked in. And then, oddly enough, I didn't even know this. Apparently, insects don't fly very high. So I was always worried about flies and whatever flying never happened. Those windows actually worked. This building was not the hellhole that you think it would have been in the dead of summer in the 1920s. It stayed. Oh, it didn't get. You weren't going to wear a wool suit and a tie, but I don't think it ever got above 82 or 3. You had more problems in the winter getting that heater to work. But then gradually you watch the building unfold as they replaced all the way, and those stone mesas, the amazing work they could do. I could sit there and watch, I don't know how many thousands of pounds those stones would weigh and circle the windows, but they were replaced, and you could watch them with those derricks slide a slope into pace that you know has to weigh half a ton, maybe a ton, and then do that, and then submit it into place. And then, it was kind of funny, because it turns out there was a lot of wood in those items. I assumed it was... Stone, it wasn't. It was wood that had been made to look like sand. They did that again, and all you do is mix sand into the paint. Paint it over, and you've got it looks just like stone. It isn't. And floor by floor, I got to watch the entire show. One of the interesting things that happened, it shows you how difficult it is to maintain a building like this. One Monday I came in, I might have been during session, it's immaterial, 
and up on the second floor, a bunch of the tiles are popped up, broken. The building shifts. And it required quite a project to fix that. But that answered another issue that we'd always kind of wondered about. When this building was built, it had those, and I don't remember what you call those, but that kind of Italianate stone that they put down, little, not exactly chips, but more fine. What happened to all that? Why is that all gone? Well, the answer is simple. Gradually, over time, that stuff just breaks up. And on the first and second floor, you can see it most clearly, you see brass strips at regular intervals, and those are pressure strips to ensure that those tiles don't break up. Now, I'm sure you've heard the story, but there is one tile they've made sure to keep. And the rumor is that when this building was built in the 1870s, there was a tile maker who, for whatever reason, was pissed. And so one tile up on the second floor is deliberately reversed so it doesn't fit in with the others around it. It's underneath one of the chairs. But anyway, the story being was that was a disgruntled tile layer who got his revenge by putting the tile in wrong and it remains that way to this day. The best fun was, I wish I could remember the, the year, but when they did the Senate and they brought that crew of imitation marble makers from London. We actually brought a crew over for a, God, the better part of a year to redo those pillars in the Senate, which turns out aren't marble, they're Galeola. And oh, there was quite a land office business of people coming in to watch them work and one night they agreed to put on a show, and it was the most fascinating presentation, as they demonstrated how to make fake marble. And I, I took the lesson away, so you can always tell fake marble, you put your hand on it, real marble is cold, fake marble is not. You go up there in the Senate, and you look at that, and you cannot tell it from the real stuff. The thing I love about this building is they spared no expense to do the job right, as they did over it all, restored it to do the job right. So you've got the uh, Wallace building, which is going to fall down. Hell, it's going to probably fall down before I leave. You've got the historical building that periodically pops a 300-pound stone and drops it down. That's always fun. And you've got the Capitol and Ola, which are going to last, well, last forever. One of the other job responsibilities lately has been drafting resolutions. Yes, I love that. Tell us a little bit about that. The thing I don't like about drafting, it's the one job where you do a lot of work, and at the end of the year, you simply throw most of it away. When you do a resolution, you've made somebody happy. More to the point, I think that's an important part of government. A lot of guys go, oh, God, I don't want to do that. It's just beneath me. I'm a lawyer. I think it's an essential part of government to recognize what people do. The Rosetta Stone over in Egypt, that stone unlocked in the Egyptian language, it's a simple thing. It's a resolution. What it basically says in many, many words is, Ptolemy V, great guy. It's a resolution. Throughout the Roman Empire, you can see the similar stones in Latin and Greek. Hey, the emperor stopped here. To me, it's always been an essential part of government to recognize what people do and congratulate them. We do resolutions. The Senate has stopped doing that, and I think that was a sad and unfortunate thing. The House still does. But I think what you're doing is you're taking somebody or something and honoring them for what they did, giving them their moment in the sun. One of the fun ones, Sean Johnson. I was asked to do a resolution to her. And then the idea was, why don't we invite her up here? Yeah, let's do that. And so we had a little ceremony, meeting the resolution for the girl, both in the House and the Senate. And people had a wonderful time. It closed the place down. Set rules were violated as people wandered back and forth and nobody could stop them. And that really is a good part of government, recognizing what people do, giving public acknowledgement to what they do. And plus, resolutions are fun to write. And some of them are just awful. 
At one point, we were resolving so many things that one of the legislators had me do a resolution thanking everybody for everything. And I think that might have been the beginning of the end of set of resolutions. So they're going, we got to stop this. <laughs> but the House still, still does them. I think they have great value because you've made one person, a group of people, whatever, you've made them very happy. You've given them a positive experience with government. Something to remember by. Well, the resolution for Mike Glover is a, is a good example. There's a guy who spent his entire life here doing good stuff. What's he get? He gets a resolution thanking him for his efforts. It's a good thing. Harms nobody. It takes some time, but not a lot. And it's part of what government should do. Going back to the Rosetta Stone. Well, resolutions have been around for a long time. I assume they'll continue. They have, but they don't in the Senate. Yeah. Oh, they have to be of national importance. So, yeah, we still do some, but we used to... Whatever little town's centennial anniversary. That's great fun. The House still does them. And memorial resolutions to legislators. And memorial resolutions to legislators. And thanking legislators for their, for their years of service. Are there any particular stories about the legislature that stick out to you that you'd like to relate? Too many of them are salacious, but yeah, there's a lot of them. I really love, I, to this very day, I just love everything about this place. It changes. Over a period of almost 40 years, you've got a different culture, you've got different people, but it's still fascinating. I enjoyed the 70s and 80s because that was the, the age of the what I call the amateur legislators. If you could get five or $10,000, you could make a run for public office. And so you ended up getting characters, people that normally wouldn't be in the legislative branch. You'd have them. Myron Oxley, a good friend, and I love Mike to death, but Mike had a hard life. He was an impression guy. He was orphaned at the age of 13. Now, he was luckier than most. He had, he inherited a farm. He had land. That meant Mike Oxley went to work at the age of 13. He managed to get through high school. He went to high school as well with his brother, but Mike had no education. He had no real fetching up. He got elected, nevertheless. His wife, Jean Oxley, was brilliant, and she was a supervisor in... in Lynn County, and so basically on her name, he got elected to the House. But Mike, a dying-in-the-world Democrat, and I mean, and you had that. New Deal Democrats were as conservative as many Republicans, but by God, they grew up in the fires of the Depression, and they grew up hating Herbert Hoover. But nonetheless, they're very conservative. So Mike would invariably vote the party line, but he sure wouldn't talk it, and he would never speak on the public forum, because not having any fetching up, Mike could not speak an entire paragraph without saying a dirty word. I mean, that's just who he was. And he knew he couldn't do that, so Mike didn't speak on the floor. And you had Bill Harbour. You had a whole slew of guys, and I missed them so much. The last of them was John Jensen. They've all died off. The World War II guys. When I came here, and I had just a, an immense amount of respect for all these men, all of whom had fought the good fight. They were... John Jensen was scheduled to hit the beach, at, not at Normandy, he was scheduled to hit the beach in Japan. So anyway, John and another old World War II guy, they're both reminiscing. And John had, uh, he didn't have terrible experiences except after the war. He was stationed in China for a while. And he saw the horrors that were going on in China, the horrible life. He, he had this horrible story about watching a woman die in the street and that you weren't supposed to uh, stay away from that. Don't mess with anything. So he watched an old woman die in the street. His children pelted her with rocks. They went on in that band, the two old legislators. And then 
by God, John Jetson dropped a bombshell. Remember, as conservative as the day is long, an old farmer from Butler County, he said, you know, that communist revolution was probably a good thing. From what he'd seen, he realized something had to change. Those are the stories I remember. Those old guys that they did what they had to do, then they came back to put together a life, and it was an idea of public service. They had no real... You'd be conservative, you might be Republican or Democrat, you were less likely to be completely ideological because you had that shared belief in World War II. That's your shared experience. So you got along better. That's kind of died away. It's a life story. You had Bill Harbor. He had a wonderful, it's unprintable, but he had a wonderful story as when he was Speaker of the House. One of, this one's printable. The lobbyist to beat all lobbyists in the 1940s and 50s was, of all people, Ed Jones. Jim Carney has retained many of his clients, as has Buddha. Buddha is a disciple of Ed Jones. Ed Jones had every client worth having in the 1940s and 50s. He was an alcoholic. He was, uh, he was a rascal. Oddly enough, I found out my mother knew him quite well. In fact, Ed Jones hated my father. I wish I had more time to find out why, but Ed Jones did not like my dad. Anyway, Ed Jones was a horrible alcoholic. And Speaker Harbor's story was that one day, Ed Jones, who knew no shame, broke into the Speaker's office, stole his bottle of whiskey, drank it, and then commandeered the elevator riding up and down during session. I wouldn't let anybody on or off. <laughs> yeah. As uh, George Wilson told me, another longtime lobbyist, he said, Really, all the restrictions on lobbyists that we enjoy today have their genesis in Ed Jones. Ed Jones would go up to your table and vote for you. I knew him slightly. He was the head of the Bar Association when I got here. So I knew Ed slightly, and of course he knew who I was from my family, as it turns out. And he was much more sedate. Then he got cancer and died. And of course, true to form, tough old bird that he was, he's dying. And Jim Carney sat there with him. So yeah. This dying isn't for sissies. So he was a great guy. The characters we had, another one of the World War II guys, Elmer Vermeer, he was one of Governor Ray Stafford's, and he was an old World War II guy. I had that office down in room 116, and I smoked in that office. That, that was one of the reasons I was there. Dutch had a bad heart and was not supposed to smoke, but of course he's not. So the deal was, he'd come down to my office, bum a couple of cigarettes, and in exchange he'd tell me his World War II stories. Dutch had won the Silver Star. And the reason he won that, he was a ranger. He had to sign a medical release before they, that's how people were in the 1940s. You actually did do public service. He actually had to sign a release before they let him in the army because they had a bad heart, which by the way ultimately killed him fairly young in his 70s. So there he was, a young ranger, a lieutenant on D-Day, and there was a mission called Point de Hoc. The rumor was that the Germans had managed to retrieve the guns from the Graf Spade, giant 16-inch artillery pieces that could sink anything that moved. And their job was to climb this cliff under enemy fire and take Point de Hoc. And what's scary is they did it. I mean, under enemy fire, they climbed the cliff, took Point de Hoc. By the way, the guns weren't there. There was nothing there. So anyway, so Dutch is there, and he's fighting on D-Day. They've run out of ammunition, so they had to retrieve enemy ammunition and enemy guns for three days before they were relieved. And he was filled with stories about, because the scary thing is a lot of people, they would maybe tell you their stories hesitantly, and 
Only in general terms, others wouldn't say it all. One other guy who hit the beach on D-Day, all he'd say, well, normally he said, it was a hell of a thing. It was a hell, and that was all he would say. Dutch spoke of it in great detail, because the scary thing is, you got the feeling that Dutch really enjoyed himself. And he was proud of the medals he won. He said, you know, the one medal I would never won was the Purple Heart. He went through all World War II without a scratch. And somewhere around here, he was featured in uh, Look Magazine. This like Dutch's story, but he could never publicize it. Because remember, Dutch came from Pellet. His family was Dutch, and the story had a lot of drinking and a carousing in it, and he could never show that to his parents. Because <laughs> they, you know, they weren't going to see that. But you had a lot of World War II stories, and even a few World War I stories. There were still a few World War I guys here early on in the 70s. In the 1970s and early 80s, we sort of had a committee system in which, yeah, the Speaker of the House and the majority leader of the Senate were very powerful people, but you had huge amounts of power were centered also in committee chairs, and the Rules Committee was one of the examples of that. So power was kind of diffused. When Don Davidson took over, he gradually managed to centralize power in the Speaker's office, which is how it remains to this day. That the powers of the chairs, while significant, are not what they were in the 1970s and 80s. And I think that's the beginning, it's just hard to say, the beginning of the coalition of Republicans and Democrats as separate caucuses and relatively hostile. Because it used to be you got your supporters where you could find them. You didn't necessarily have to have a caucus position before you take action. But now, as we've centralized power more and more in the Speaker's office and the, and the Majority Leader's office and the Minority Leader's, you find less across-the-aisle types of things, as was so common in the 1970s and early 1980s. You found your votes where you got them. Kevin Kelly needed votes for uh, Hawaiian liquor stores. Kevin Kelly found those votes wherever he could, be it Republican or Democrat. You find that less so today. I liked it in the 1970s because the legislature moved at its own pace. There was less direction. There was less message. There was, well, there was really no need to have public relations people to send out the message because the message was whatever got enacted into law at the end of the year. But now we've coalesced into two relatively hostile camps. And I think it had its genesis, not entirely. Part of it was from centralization of power. The gift law had something to do with it. In the 1970s and early 80s, wrongly, this place was really riotous. You worked during the day, and then you'd get together and have drinks or dinner during the night, and lobbyists would pay for it. And that is a bad thing. It had to be changed. It was changed. But it did provide an opportunity for people of different parties to socialize. And when you socialize with somebody, as they do on the Rules Committee, you become friendly. And if you become friendly, you are more likely to sit around and work together. The ending of the whining and dining, which had to happen, I'm the first to admit that, again, it encouraged people to coalesce into separate camps. You tend to stay with your own. Old Myron Oxley, he roomed with a Republican. It didn't matter to him. It was a Republican from a nearby district. Party labels were not quite so important. Ideologies weren't quite so important. That's all changed. I'm not saying it's neither good nor bad. It is different. Every age has its own advantages and has its own problems. Riotous drinking followed by legislation the next day, not a good thing. A lot of those lines, one of the things, how pages have changed over the years, especially in the 1970s, I think this place was really an inappropriate place for young people to be. I mean, we, that's all been cleaned up. But the year before I got here, and I never knew the girl, but I did know her roommate. I was
was dating her at the time. One of the pages here committed suicide. She went down and laid on the railroad track. No one knows why she did. But this place was not a place for young children. The 70s was kind of a wild time to begin with. This place became, I won't say it was inappropriate for kids, but like for instance, one of the best examples was they used to have a pages ball during the session. Since kids were going to miss their homecoming parties, we threw a pages ball, and it was really quite the event for people to have fun. Toward the end, before they outlawed it, I remember seeing girl pages coming in at 10 o'clock in the morning, clearly hungover, still in their prom dresses, which didn't look all that fresh, and you heard stories. You heard really inappropriate stories. So, as part of all this with the gift laws and things, you saw a real attempt, a real desire to clean up how this place worked, because in the early 80s it was out of control, culminating, I think, in, although it was probably the last gasp, in the bingo incident with the drunkenness of the dancing girls. But there was a problem that needed to be cleaned up, and I remember George Wilson said it best. This old, curmudgingly lobbyist, son of a former governor and U.S. senator, but he said it best. About the Pages Ball, just about the time it was canceled, he said, this is an adult party to which children are invited, and he was not saying it in a complimentary way. It had devolved into a bad thing, and it finally has gotten cleaned up, and now I think the Pages have a really good experience. The one paid story I still want to track down, and I have not been able to do it, I believe that in 1912, in the Senate, there was some kind of little revolution amongst the pages, and they took over room 24. They turned it into a clubhouse. The story I heard was they stuffed tissue in the locks so it couldn't be accessed, and then, using the windows, they walked around that outside ramp on the second floor to get into their little clubhouse. And for whatever reason, how long this went on, whether it was hours or days, I have no idea. But the legislators tolerated it. They didn't do anything about it. Then the story goes that one page, he fell and was killed. The interesting thing was, and I've not been able to find it since, one of the fiscal guys found it, and he doesn't remember where he got it. Look at this resolution. There was a resolution, and I swear it was in 1911, 12, or 13, expressing sorrow at the death, it was a 14-year-old page. And it didn't explain how he died, but it falls into place. I did use that news service we have. I have tried manfully to try to find a news story about a page dying in the Capitol, but I haven't been able to. The story I first heard was, as I've related, that they had this little clubhouse and he fell. I have, the confirmation I have is I have physically seen with my own eyes a resolution from the legislature, but I can't find it again. We'll find it. Vernon Schroeder, he's filled with interesting stories. He was interesting to work for as the chair of the Rules Review Committee because he was the very definition of the old farmer. Well, what we'll he was. He and Burrell worked hand in hand. When the Republicans were in charge, he chaired the Rules Committee. When the Democrats were in charge, Burrell did. And they just saw eye to eye on everything. And Vern was just, I remember his campaign slogan, fewer changes in Iowa laws. And that, that's how <laughs> campaigns were back. They were low-key kind of things. And you had a, your idea, nobody's going to say Vern's anything but conservative. But, you know, he'd talk to you, like, maybe we could work out a deal and get something done. Who knows? But that was common in the 1970s and 80s. That's how the place worked. People who had no personal ambition, they weren't running for any higher office, nor did they have any overarching goal that they wanted to achieve. They had been in the Farm Bureau for many years. They had worked their way up. They had maybe been a county supervisor. This was the next and final step in your career before you went back home. And your wife would come down and she'd join the Legislative League and they were a hoot. 
Well, I think we're about out of time. I've run out of words. Well, it's been good talking to you. Thank you very much. It's been fun.